The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. Australia appeared to have all the makings of a country looking at a crisis back in 2008. Housing consumption was 60% or more of the economy. Manufacturing, although not as big as it used to be, was still relatively high. There was immigration, mining and commodities were an issue. They were exposed to China. Financial services seemed also quite concentrated in the country. And yet, now, 10 years later, Australia is entering its 27th year uh, of expansion. I'm Anthony Curry. Joining me is the Honourable Kevin Rudd, who at the time of the crisis was the Prime Minister of Australia, now President of the Asian Society Policy Institute here in New York. Honourable Kevin Rudd, thank you for joining the show. Happy to be with you. Now, tell me, um, all those things I mentioned, it, if you look at any country back in 2008, especially any Western country, you think, OK, there were fault lines everywhere. Um, this, any, anything could have happened. And you look around the, 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 the world and you think, no country surely could have survived this cacophony of problems that emanated from the United States and the mortgage crisis. What was different about Australia? I think what we got right was our early analysis of what was going on. Um, that is, we saw some fairly early warning signs from the end of 2007 onwards. We could see what was happening in subprime here in the United States. And certainly with our Treasury advisors in Canberra, we kept asking questions about what were the scenarios which could flow from this, both for uh, financial stability right. and more broadly uh, for economic growth and the balance of payments right. if everything went upside down. So why is it that you got that insight? Is it because when you, your party, the, the Labour Party, was voted in in November 2007, overturning the Liberals who've been in power for over a decade? Um, I'm, I'm assuming that you, the, the, the heads of the Treasury, uh, 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 the Minister of Finance and others, were obviously going around properly introducing yourselves to world governments, having them come to you as well. Was that part of it? You get, was, I mean, I would assume that at the time you, you were hoping to, here's our agenda, this is what we're thinking about, this is what we want to do on the international stage, and everyone's saying to you, well, we've got this problem <laughs> that seems to be getting worse. Is that where it came from, or was it that you had other analyses going on? Basically, it was our own internal analyses. And the externalities, by and large, looked all right at that stage. And you're right, we'd just been elected. Uh, we'd been out of office as a party for more than a decade. We're a bunch of social democratic progressives. We have a large agenda to implement. And of course, all the colleagues were gung-ho to get it done. Right. Uh, but what uh, I had done as the Prime Minister was always have a cautionary approach to a plan B. That is, if the global economy had, in fact, uh, turned sour and was in danger of swallowing us up. I'm enough of an historian to know what can happen to well-meaning progressive governments when economic environments around them uh, engulf them, as happened in 1929. Yeah. And there were some things you inherited from the previous administration. So there was virtually no debt. Um, the balance of payments looked good. Um, how much did that play into it? I've noticed this in doing the research that there was a, there's, again, a fair degree in the last election in 2016. There's another one coming up next year, probably. 
a lot of people have been saying, well, you know, on the Liberal side, the Labour, what the Labour, Labour government inherited a good position. That's all it was on the Labour side. Well, look, yes, we did. But also we needed to respond to a fast moving crisis. How do you interpret it now, sort of 10 years on, how important what you were given as you took over was to, to how you handled the crisis? I think uh, what we were handed in terms of the general economy uh, was, uh, frankly, full of problems. The Australian economy in those days was not highly diversified. Uh, I campaigned long and hard on an issue, which was we didn't want to end up simply being China's quarry and Japan's beach. Uh, it had to be a fully diversified economy in the future. And to do that, we had engineer three big revolutions, one in productivity, uh, one in workforce participation, another in terms of sustainable population growth. So we had an agenda to diversify yeah. the economy. That took over from the weaknesses that we'd inherited. On the strength side, uh, yes, we'd inherited a situation uh, where the uh, economy or the public sector was net debt free. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we still had a number of other rigidities. Our uh, advantage was that we had uh, a strong Treasury with whom I worked closely as Prime Minister who took seriously the business of analysing the micro data from around the world and there was enough about our quantitative and qualitative assessment about the gaps in the regulatory environment here in the United States that caused us to as I said have a very cautionary somewhat pessimistic plan B. So by the time the crisis really hit on that uh, Black Friday in October, uh, as you like, six months or so after Lehman's went under, yeah. uh, we were in reasonable analytical shape and therefore with a reasonable set of policy prescriptions up our sleeve. Right. Now, um, as I look at it, so various things happened in the first 18 months you're in office because of the global financial crisis. So um, I think the stock market in Australia basically halved. Um, obviously, you had all the problems of subprime mortgages. It hit, hit the, the Australian banks ever so slightly, not much. There wasn't a great deal of, it, of interest in buying subprime products and, and the CDOs, although a lot of councils and hospitals and nursing homes and others seemed to, to be buying them. How much of a concern was that at the time? Did you think this? we are now also exposed to these things that are just hard to wrap our heads around and no one knows how much is out there? That was one of the biggest problems with these products, that no one really had a clue just how much there was in people's hands. Well, that began my, um, shall I say, long-term conversation with the Secretary of our own Treasury, which is, explain the derivatives market to me, Ken. <laughs> Ken Henry was the Secretary right. of the Treasury. Uh, answer me this question, who owes how much to whom and by when must it be paid? And yeah. when those answers could not be delivered with any clarity, I said, well, you mean this whole house of cards ultimately rests on continued confidence in the existence of the house of cards? And so when that confidence collapses, the house of cards come, comes tumbling down, yeah. to which the answers were yes, yes, and yes. So our first analytical task was to work out how exposed were our own institutions. And because our banks were relatively conservative, but also been the beneficiary of, uh, let's call it, the regulatory afterwash of the Asian financial crisis back in 1997-98, they were in reasonable shape. So we approached the crisis knowing that we could say to the public, our degree of exposure is limited. However, because our financial institutions were so linked <coughs> in terms of international credit mm. to the ability of the American financial institutions to continue to provide liquidity, uh, there was an immediate crisis as the American banks, who had a serious bottom line problem, started to, as it were, uh, withdraw right. uh, their funds back to home base to repair their balance sheets. 
The only way we could sustain, therefore, the capital needs of our banks was to provide an immediate sovereign guarantee for interbank lending, despite the fact that intrinsically they didn't have a problem. Right. For me, the two big decisions were, in October, taken over a very intense weekend of cabinet meetings. One, Prime Minister, please sign uh, a, uh, an unlimited uh, guarantee to interbank lending uh, for Australia's uh, big four or five banks. And number two, while you're at it, sign this guarantee uh, for the security of every savings deposit in the country. It's a very focusing moment for I a newly elected is, yeah. Prime I mean, that, 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 was, that, that caused similar issues. Like that caused a lot of debate here, of course, at the time. was still a Republican government uh, running the country here in the United States. And for them, that's a, a, a very difficult conversation to have, as we saw. Uh, I think uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, actually basically had to get down on one knee and begged, begged the Congress to, to give him the money uh, for, the, for the bailout. Um, how did you approach that yourself when you're presented with basically what is a massive financial moral hazard? It is a very large moral hazard, and I'm basically a pro-markets guy. Uh, I essentially am a uh, blue dog Democrat in the sense that I'm fiscally conservative by nature, uh, socially progressive, <clears throat> and on the question of government intervention in the economy, a lighter touch is better than a heavier touch under normal circumstances. Problem was, the circumstances weren't normal. In fact, uh, when we'd brought down our budget in 2008, in May of that year, at our budget night ceremony, I handed formally a copy of John Maynard Keynes's general theory to the Secretary of the Treasury and said, Ken, we'd both better brush up on this yeah. in case it all turns to pot. So uh, what we did, uh, having been reasonably well prepared, was take those decisions. We did not face the problem that Gordon Brown faced of having to bail out an individual bank, mm -hmm. but we did take on the moral hazard of guaranteeing individual savings deposits and in guaranteeing interbank lending. If it all turned out fine in the end, which it did, uh, then uh, everyone would say it was the right thing to do. And if it turned out bad, then I would be the most hated person yeah. in Australian yeah. economic history. Then, of course, came um, a stimulus plan, well, two, in fact, in, in relatively short order. Um, talk us through those. The first one was about $10 billion Australian dollars. The next one was $42 billion. It involved a mix of uh, infrastructure spending, uh, and also um, direct payments to a lot of, in fact, in the end, I think virtually every Australian citizen of, of voting age, I assume. Um, how did you come to those decisions? Uh, we again met extensively as a cabinet uh, strategic committee to go through two questions. Having resolved the uh, stability of financial institutions and people's individual bank deposits, we then went on to the impact on the real economy and employment. The Treasury's prediction was that at that stage was that recession was inevitable and we're looking at an unemployment rate approaching double digits. Economic history told us that in all global recessions we had actually come out worse than most economies because we we're more trade exposed than others. Right. And so running an unemployment rate then of five, we were looking at, at a uh, doubling of the unemployment rate. So we had a focused discussion over several days on the raft of stimulus measures which would be necessary in response to my question, what if we don't want to go into recession, not to allow it? What will be the quantum, Secretary of the Treasury, of the fiscal stimulus we'll need on top of what the bank does in collapsing interest rates uh, in order to make a difference to what you anticipate to be a contraction in the economy in the order of five percentage points? To which the answer was, uh, over time, Prime Minister, we'll need between five and six percentage points of GDP of stimulus to which I then said, what's the most effective form of stimulus, Secretary? To which he said, based on our experience in the recession of the early 90s, 
It's go hard, go heavy, go households. Mm -hmm. In other words, basic Keynesian approach, which is get the money into the economy quickly. And that's why we took the controversial decision of putting out about 1.5% of GDP immediately into cash payments uh, to people effectively under about $150,000 a year across uh, the Australian economy. And I went out as Prime Minister and said, go and spend for your country. And they did. Right. And what about infrastructure? It strikes me that looking at how you divvy that up, education got a large amount. And that seems to go back to your um, part of your initial plan before the crisis hit when you were running for office or to become Prime Minister of actually having more, a more socially progressive uh, system in Australia. Well, we staged stimulus, as I said, uh, over two or three phases. We were keen to construct uh, the stimulus in a manner which, as it were, bled out over time, not just in one initial hit, but over, frankly, an 18-month period. Uh, and secondly, to target individual sectors of total final demand. Obviously, in a modern economy like ours, which is 60% of total final demand coming from uh, private domestic consumption, that's what we hit first. But then you look at the other sectors. And in terms of uh, public investment, that represented something like uh, in the order of maybe 20, 22% of total final demand. So within that, um, what's uh, appealed to me enormously was what we could do by way of modernising the Australian school infrastructure. So we, to every primary school in the country, offered to build modern state-of-the-art libraries, fully connected to the internet, uh, in the, even in the most remote areas of the country, or new multi-purpose facilities to schools which didn't have them in the extreme heat or in some places the extreme cold. And that turned out to be a $15.6 billion investment, again representing about another 1.5% of GDP. Final advantage was, because these were schools, the land was all owned by either government or by the churches, in which case we didn't have hazardous planning approvals. We could just get to it, and we did. And ten to 15,000 new brand spanking new school structures went up uh, with uh, tradies, that is, um, uh, people working as carpenters and bricklayers and joiners and the rest, uh, as well as electricians, all finding work when the private domestic housing construction uh, came under pressure. Now, looking back 10 years on, is there anything you wish you'd done differently or any policies you're very glad that you was, were suggested to you and you thought, I'm glad I didn't do that? I think across the set of measures that we examined and the many we discarded, we got the balance about right. I think uh, one of the areas that we invested in, uh, which was a, a home insulation program uh, to provide a subsidy to individual households to put uh, ceiling insulation in in order to reduce energy costs over time as part of a climate change measure as well. Um, not enough uh, due diligence was done by the implementing agencies there in terms of how it could be done safely and effectively without, a f uh, without avoiding unnecessary risk. But on the others, uh, the cash payments to households worked very well. The school modernization program worked highly effectively and the legacy still exists. On top of that, we also brought in uh, a trebling of the first homeowner's um, bonus so that if you were going to buy your first house, we would effectively contribute something in the order of about fifteen dollars to $20,000 to get you right. off the ground. And finally, for the private sector, what we did was uh, we brought in a temporary investment allowance which enabled private firms and often small businesses to bring forward their capital purchases and basically have half of that written off immediately against tax 
That enabled us to therefore keep, um, as it were, the wheels turning with local manufacturing as well and the motor vehicle industry. Put together, 5.6% of GDP, most of it pretty effective. We came through with the skin of our teeth in terms of staying out of recession. But all these years on, not a bad story to say that we're now into our 27th year of consecutive growth. And, and finally, um, when you look at where Australia is now and how the financial system works and how it now interacts with uh, the rest of the globe, how well run do you think it now is and how, do you how well do you think it can cope with whatever shocks come through the system next? Uh, the other half of the entire story from the period of the global financial crisis is not just what we did domestically, but what we did internationally, firstly in establishing the G20 at uh, prime ministerial or presidential level, and then second, linking it directly to the work of the Financial Stability Board, um, the FSB, um, in order to ensure that we are bringing about as uniform as possible an, a comprehensive financial regulatory framework to minimize the prospects uh, or the risk of such a systemic crisis happening again. We've been full participants in that, uh, th both through Basel II, Basel III. Uh, we've been full participants through the Reserve Bank of Australia as well as the Commonwealth Treasury of Australia. Um, our banks have kicked and screamed as much as any other banks have in the world about the impact on such things as capital adequacy ratios and the rest. But by and large, the banks, therefore, are, are in a much more robust position than they even were then to withstand systemic shock. So the warning is, if there is evidence in the United States, for example, on the future of Dodd-Frank, that these guys are going to pull the pin from underneath that, that's when the whole house of cards starts to come tumbling down again. Because every other one of the G20 economies uh, implemented parallel measures as part of the regulatory reform agenda engineered under the G20 through the Financial Stability Board with the direct participation of our central banks and economic and financial regulators. If Uncle Sam decides to walk out of that, not only is it bad for future financial stability here, it unstitches so much of the protective machinery we put in place for all of us. Right. Kevin Rudd, Prime Minister of Australia during the global financial crisis, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to The Exchange. This episode was produced by Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. Do sign up for our podcast on iTunes and don't forget to check us out at breakingviews.com. <laughs>